2,000 years ago, the first Christians converted the culture. How did they do it? And is there any hope that what worked once can work again? Join us today as we discuss these questions and more with Mike Aquilina, co-author of the book, Seven Revolutions, How Christianity Changed the World and Can Change It Again. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement here at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. We're joined by a special panelist today, our President and uh, Professor of Theology, Father Sean Sheridan, TOR, and our regular panelist, Dr. Scott Hahn, who holds the Father Michael Scanlon Chair in Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization. And we're joined by our very special guest, Mike uh, Aquilina. You're no stranger to us here, uh, but you're the author of uh, 40 award-winning books on uh, the early church fathers, church uh, doctrine and devotion. Um, you're also the executive vice president uh, at the St. Paul Center, uh, Biblical Theology. You've been the host of nine different series on EWTN. You've done numerous documentaries. The list could go on and on. You're the you know, past <laughs> editors of New Covenant, uh, as well as the Pittsburgh Catholic. Um, but today we're talking about seven revolutions, how Christianity changed the world and can change it again with you and Jim Papandrea. Today we're talking about the looking backwards into the pre-Christian world. Um, and in your book, you write that Christianity was different than anything that came before it. And, and that seems so uh, foreign to us today, obviously, since we live in a, a very Christianized culture, affected, at least has in the past affected. What do you mean by that? Well, we mean everything by that. Uh, my my co-author and I really believe that Christianity introduced some seed ideas that have eventually just grown into the culture we know today. We take it for granted. We no longer realize it's there. All of the principles we hold dear and all of the principles that we hold um, others accountable to are there because Christianity brought them to the world. Yeah. Uh, so it, was, it, it, it introduced qualitative differences in every sphere of life and we kind of group those differences into seven different categories, seven revolutions that Christianity affected in those early centuries and it produced a striking enough difference for the Christians to notice it, of course, but also the pagans to take notice of it yeah. and even admire it grudgingly. Right. And I think for today, we, it's almost too hard for us to distinguish what is affected from Christianity and what is just, quote unquote, normal for us. Oh, sure, uh, because we have all of these ideas. We have ideas like victims' rights. Right. Where mm -hmm. did that come from? Mm -hmm. You know, in the ancient world, victims didn't have rights. Mm -hmm. yeah. They were losers. Yeah. And losers got what they deserved. You know, they were marginalized. They were, they were punished for losing. <laughs> now, with Christianity came this idea of a common human dignity that was even extended to losers. And we find through the Beatitudes and other Christian maxims that losers are exalted. 
they hold a special place in the heart of, hearts of Christians. Right. So go a little deeper into what that pre-Christian world looked like. I mean, you, you even say that th that pre-Christian world is pervasively mean, uh, callous, hopeless, and loveless. I mean, I, again, I think we want to paint a picture for where Christianity was birthed, where, where we came from. What was that, that pre-Christian world like? It's not, yeah, you know, and it's not only Christians who make judgments like that in hindsight. You know, if you look at the judgments of the times, you know, my favorite line is from Thucydides, who's of course writing before the time of Christ. You know, but Thucydides, Thucydides says, um, uh, uh, has, this, has this great line, and he says, uh, he says, the mighty do what they wish, the weak suffer what they must. It was all about power. It was all about what you could get away with, what wealth could buy you. And that's the way the world was ordered. And you find this, um, this power dynamic playing out uh, at a societal level, of course, uh, where uh, you know, there, there were times in the history of uh, the Italian peninsula where most of the, the people who lived there were enslaved. Wow. Wow. You know, this idea of the dignity of the human person and equality, you know, this is sort of like the social capital. It's almost like, you know, the, the cultural wallpaper that yes. we assume. Yeah. But we don't recognize that it w didn't exist in the pre-Christian world and it won't exist in a post-Christian world, at least not much longer. And so to recognize the spiritual origins of this, you know, it sort of takes outsiders to show us what we take for granted on the inside. I remember, you know, when it came to the dignity of the person back in the late 40s, when they were drafting the UN Charter, Jacques Maritain had a hand in this. And, you know, a lot of people were surprised that communist representatives were resisting the adoption of the language of the dignity of the human person because this is Christian theology. This is religious language, you yes. know. And they like, knew it for what? what it was. That's right. <laughs> they saw the historical origins, but they also saw that these words sort of bear meanings that, you know, you don't recognize how they sound to us, you know. And this is true, I think, for the dignity of the person. It also recognized, we, we discovered that power is going to be wielded by Almighty God in an entirely new way with Christianity. And so everybody else who wields power is going to have to sit up and take notice because they're going to have to give an account for how they do it. Yeah. One of the striking things that I saw whenever I was reading through your book, and it's actually pervasive throughout all of the chapters as you discuss the various revolutions that occurred, is, is oftentimes we come with a presupposition that uh, the times influenced the way Christianity developed and was practiced and being able to be free to do the things that we do as Christians. And, and so often we see the impact of our society on what we think we should be able to do uh, as Christians today. But it's actually the opposite as you sure. demonstrate uh, in, in throughout the course of the history of the church in those early days. That it was the church, as we've been saying already, that changed the culture. It, and it did, sometimes in almost invisible ways. You know. Uh, uh, already in the first century, Caesar Augustus, you know, the, the, the man who was emperor at the time our Lord was born, mm -hmm. was worried about uh, the demographic patterns, right. you know, yeah. in yeah. Rome. There, there were, you know, people just were infertile. They weren't, they weren't having babies. They were choosing not to have babies. They were aborting the babies, mm -hmm. you know, they conceived and they were, they were uh, committing infanticide with the babies who were born. Well, the complete disregard for human life right. is so evident in what you talk about in your book and it's just astounding. It, you know, but Augustine looked at that and he was prudent enough to see that a demographic winter was coming and that this would have all kind of, uh, on his politics and his society right. and his economics. Right, you know? right, right. Homeland security. Right. He, <laughs> he saw this coming. And so he, he enacted laws 
to, uh, to promote f fertility, mm -hmm. and people ignored those laws. And that's happening today. They, they continued to have abortions, they continued to commit infanticide. What's interesting is that we, we find the first anti-abortion laws, really, in human history, outside of the religion of Israel, we find the first anti-abortion laws appearing as the second century turns to the third. And many historians believe that this shows the influence of Christianity on the wider culture at mm. that time. Because they looked at the Christian family, mm -hmm. Christians were reproducing, Christians had orderly families, happy families. They were forward-looking in ways that the Roman citizens were not. Yeah, that's powerful. And you've kind of touched around this, but you know, what did the ancient world, or how did the ancient world view women? Oh. I mean, that's. I mean, we talked about equality and human dignity. What, what did they see uh, as they looked at uh, women? And today, you hear all kinds of uh, ludicrous uh, charges that that Christianity wages war on women, yes. that sort of thing. But if you if you look at the history of antiquity, you, you won't find another. Uh, 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 another philosophy, another approach to life that afforded women equal dignity with, when, with men. Yes. Uh, you know, and St. Paul says this explicitly. He said, you know, in Christ there's, there's, there's neither woman nor man. And, and Christians were serious about this. Right. Right. Um, what's interesting uh, about, about, uh, about Christian women is that they, they emerged in the church in leadership positions. Now, not ordained positions, but they were leaders. You know, one of the earliest documents we have from the hand of a woman, okay, a woman setting this down is the prison journal of Perpetua, okay, written down in North Africa, in a province. She's obviously an educated woman. She keeps a journal while she's in prison. Well, what we find is that among the Christians there in prison, she emerged because of her charisms, of, of teaching and leading, she emerged as the leader. Her parish priest was there, too. Eventually, he right. joined her in prison, but she was the one who was really a, a, a spiritual leader among them, and class divisions broke down. Divisions between the sexes broke down there in prison, and we see this, um, this foretaste of heaven mm. in the most dank and dismal place. They saw the attractiveness, yes. and they saw the leadership. She wasn't afraid or ashamed. Yes. She stepped forward with boldness because she was a Christian woman. She understood her That's dignity. Right. Yeah. On the other hand, in the pagan world, you have, you have the pagans writing about their daughters as a liability. Mm -hmm. you know, they were never going to earn money for the family. They were never going to let dad retire. You know? and, and when they finally got around to marrying at age 11 or 12, he'd have to pay a big dowry for them. So the playwrights refer, referred to them as odious daughters. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the tag they got, they, they got painted with in, in that period. And that was pre-Christian view of women versus the empowerment, really, and the yes. dignity that was imbued by Christianity. Yes. Yeah, that's powerful. Yeah, the dignity of the person and at the same time the sanctity of marriage. Mm. Again, this sort, of, uh, this sort of feels like wallpaper, but again, back then, you, know, you look in the Old Testament and monogamy was the ideal clearly, and yet polygamy was w practiced in a widespread way, and Deuteronomy allowed for divorce and remarriage. And so when you take the ideal and make it the norm, mm -hmm. you know, it seems like a, a, you know, a subtle shift, but it's seismic in its it consequences. Is. Because then suddenly virginity, chastity, fidelity, openness to life, these things that just happen so gradually, just, you know, it's sort of like the tide completely shifting and bringing a whole new way of life and you know, it does it in a way that is imperceptible, especially because a lot of the people who were trying to do it were also being persecuted. Oh, sure. You know? But at the same time, over the course of generations, 
you know, the change is complete. And I'm glad you brought up the issue of virginity and yeah. celibacy because, because these things uh, were, were so valued by the Christians and yet they were absurdities right. in the pagan culture which was highly sexualized and where women had no status apart from the males in their lives. Right. Okay? In, in, within the church, a woman could have status because of her relationship to the church, her relationship to Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, she could commit herself to virginity, never marry, never have sons, and yet have prestige in the Christian and, and be a spiritual matriarch in, yes. in the family of God, as it were. I mean, something that just, they didn't have the categories for. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And these striking contrasts that we've been talking about between the Roman society and the Christians of the early days. You know, it really goes back to what you just said, that relationship that the Christians had, that personal relationship that they had with Christ, yeah. and being able to lay down their lives for what they believed in, lay down their lives very joyfully, not being, uh, you know, subject to, to renouncing everything just so they could continue to live, but they were knowing that the better part was yet to come as long as they remained faithful to what Christ asked them to do. You just put your finger on the most important matter because it wasn't as though they all sat down to hammer out a political platform. No, that's right. Okay. Or even so a philosophy. You know, <laughs> the dignity of the person, I mean, this is going to change culture. This is going to win voters, you know. Yeah. It's like the relationship with Jesus Christ, you know, matters more than everything else put together. Mm -hmm. So the social consequences are sort of like let the chips fall where they may, but look where they fell. That's, that's right. right. And, and it was without an agenda, without a program, yeah. without a plan. Mm -hmm. They saw everything in the light of Christ. Mm -hmm. They held everything accountable to Christ, mm -hmm. even the state. Mm -hmm. And that was a revolution in itself. Yeah. yeah. This is powerful because, it, it, uh, you know, following from all of this, it's just everything that they viewed youth and children. I mean, that they were seen, as you talked about, um, you know, just as, as slaves that could be easily used or discarded or sexually abused or sure. all these other things where now they were imbued with dignity. Now they had, at least in the eyes of the Christian, sure. uh, had worth. And there were many, you know, I, I will get to it later, probably but some great youth that stepped up to lead. A absolutely, absolutely. It, it, that's another striking thing. When, when modern readers go back and read the classical sources, they're often struck by the distance that they find between parents and children, yeah. that there's a, an emotional distance between parents and children. And part of it is, is due to the fact that, uh, that there was a high infant mortality rate sure. and, a, and, and a high childhood uh, mortality rate. So, so you can see a, a kind of protective distancing, and yet that's missing from the, uh, the, the Christian sources of that time. Mm -hmm. uh, I, 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 love, um, I, I love the way s some historians refer to it as the invention of childhood. Mm -hmm. you know, the invention mm -hmm. of childhood. Mm -hmm. Isn't that powerful? Yes. Um, so if you looked at it, you talk, are there two things, uh, and we, we've already kind of touched on them, but what two things would you look at that would be the most stark contrast between Christians and those in the ancient world? Um, Just going by the pagan impressions. Yes. It would be martyrdom and charity. Because they saw that these people had something they were willing to die for. Mm. And if you have something to die for, then you're, you have something you're living for. Yes. And that inspired the pagans. Right. So we have uh, really brilliant men like Justin Martyr uh, in, the, in the early church who saw the courage of the martyrs and, and that was a significant step on their way uh, to, to conversion. Mm. So martyrdom on the one hand, this public witness, uh, one historian has even called it a public liturgy mm. because mm. the Christians right. viewed it in Eucharistic terms, right. self-offering, right. sacrifice, right. Right. and, uh, and it, was, it was very public. The other one is charity. Charity, this, this utter giving of self, concern for the other. It, it, the pagans saw it in the Christian homes 
and in the Christian's striking way of life, to steal, to steal a phrase from one of, um, one of the sources of that time, that Christians were giving. There were no institutionalized charities until the church came around and established them. There were no hospitals, there were no hospices, there was no dream of universal education, there were no pharmacies available to everyone until the monasteries made these just a normal part of civic life. Yeah, that's a powerful topic. Uh, way to end it maybe for this segment. We can catch that on the next set part. Uh, stay with us on Franciscan University Presents. The bishop was led into the stadium where death and gore were entertainment. As he entered the arena in chains, surrounded by those who hated the faith that he stood for, he heard the voice of God encouraging him, telling him to be strong and courageous. The Martyrdom of Polycarp They marry, as everyone does. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. Epistle to Diognetus People recognize Franciscan University as being academically excellent and passionately Catholic. We have the unique opportunity through our faculty members, through our students, to proclaim that academic excellence by reaching out in many different ways. We also remain passionately Catholic in the way in which we are able to worship, the way in which we are able to uh, bring that love of Christ to others on a daily basis. It's important for us to be able to embrace both. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking with Mike Aquilina, author, a co-author of The Seven Revolutions, How Christianity Changed the World and Still Can Today. Um, Mike, we, we, we've talked a little about the pre-Christian world, and now we want to talk more deeply on your revolutions, because we, we've, we've, again, we've hit them on a couple different areas. But the first one, the first revolution, is uh, the personhood. Sure. And what did that mean? What did that look like, I guess, contrasting pre-Christ uh, and, and now with the, the in light of Christ? What did that do? Well, earlier in the show, we talked about slavery. You know, just mentioned slavery. And, uh, and if you think about it, and, and you think about a majority of the people living in the Italian peninsula, being slaves to other people. Other people owned them. Mm -hmm. They had no personhood. They had no face before the law. They were non-persons. They could be abused, physically abused at will. They could be sexually abused at will. And, uh, and they were. There were no laws against these things. Now, Christianity did not abolish slavery. St. Paul uh, is dealing with it in his letters, and he assumes it as part of the, the cultural package. It was just everywhere in antiquity, and it was unheard of to have a culture without slaves. Um, but, but, but the relationship between master and slave changes radically with Christianity, and we find that in St. Paul in, in, his, in his letter to Philemon, where, where he's talking about master and slave being brothers in Christ. Which, which is revolutionary. That it is revolutionary, and once Christians were in a position where they could change the law, then suddenly there were these laws against 
the sexual abuse of a slave, for example. Uh, if, if, a, if a master abused a slave in this way, the slave was automatically manumitted. Freedom was the result of that. It took centuries uh, for, for slavery to, to vanish, and it did gradually right. in the Christian world. But already in the fourth century, we find voices speaking out for kind of a universal abolition of slavery. I mean, because slavery still exists today in it some does. parts of the world, which I think is still foreign today, but to look back and say that was, that was the norm uh, in the world uh, at the time, still, again, is still, you can't get grab your mind around that. Because thing. Christianity set the new norm, and we measure everything by that today, and we don't give it a second thought. Yeah. This it, is all part of the wallpaper. It, it, as you said, is, is the wallpaper. The, the, yeah. Everything, the air that we breathe, yes. has influenced us so much, and us, we as Catholics and Christians, we don't appreciate yes. fully that we led this. I mean, Christ uh, led it through the Christian community. You know, I did a word study years ago on family, wondering, you know, why wasn't family used very often in the, even in the early Christian sources? Mm -hmm. uh, you have other terms, but once I figured out that familus was the term used in Roman culture, but that most of the members of the families of the familia were slaves. The household, you know, sure. Yeah, it didn't evoke this sort of warm, fuzzy feelings at all because wow. it's like, whoa, family doesn't mean much, you know. But what happens to the dignity of the person with regard to marriage and family. You know, all of this is really, I mean, we can distinguish the seven revolutions, but I'm glad you put the, the fourth one to anticipate as the religious revolution because it's the hinge on which everything turns, mm -hmm. the first three from the person and the family to society you know, and all of that because the idea of personhood itself isn't there in Socrates or Plato nope. or Aristotle, Cicero, Seneca. None of the great Greco-Roman philosophers understood humans as anything more than individuals. Mm -hmm. I mean, and dogs can be individuated, rocks can be, but the idea of being made in the image of God isn't really recovered until the image is restored through Christ. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly, you know, we know about the controversies about three persons in one nature, the Trinity, one person in two natures, Christology. But the, the hammering out of the notion of personhood for theology is really the result of the restoration of the image of God and the discovery that we are persons like the three persons of the Trinity. We are persons who now constitute this divine family. It's revolutionary and yet again, it's so gradual, it's so Quiet. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. The, that the idea of equality, again, was an absurdity in antiquity. Yeah. Uh, and especially for the weak. I, I mean, if, if, you, if, you were, if you were not an equal with the nobles, with the strong, well, it's because you didn't deserve it. And you were the undeserving poor. And, uh, and so you were marginalized. Uh, there, there are all kinds of uh, quotes in the great philosophers. Plato and Aristotle, of course, believed these things. Seneca said, what is good must be set apart from what is good for nothing. Yeah. And he was talking there about the justification for abortion and infanticide specifically. Unbelievable. Yeah. And, and, and Scott already touched on this as we started looking down from what personhood has, but your second revolution with the revolution that happened in the home, mm -hmm. you know, and as we look at, at, at family and at marriage, I mean, talk a little deeper about what that looked like, uh, you know, as the revolution there. When you're looking at marriage, not as a simple contractual arrangement, a transactional arrangement, uh, it becomes something different. It, uh, and Christians did look at it as a sacrament, right. as an image of something sacred, as, as, a, as, as a really a representation of a life that is eternal and heavenly. It's a signpost 
that's out there in the world. Christians went into it with this understanding and they lived by it. Mm. This is something that was evident in their homes. Uh, uh, the sociologist Rodney Stark has said that, uh, that he believes the family was the great locus of evangelization. The family uh, was the place where uh, conversions happened. Right. You know, first one spouse converting the other spouse right. and bringing up their children in the faith, but then sending the children out as emissaries, as ambassadors into the neighborhood, really changing the neighborhood one household at a time right. because the church itself as an institution did not have this kind of visibility. Yeah, because you, and you reference at other points, you know, we're talking about the, the uh, new evangelization a lot. Yes. And this is really the old evangelization or the original evangelization sure. and, it, and it started there. Sure. Uh, and it went out. And, and it went out like wildfire. Th it did. And that's why I think it's relevant. I think that w that's why it's valuable for us to study today. Mm. You know, now we can predict the weather. You know, I'm kind of a junkie for checking the weather whenever I'm planning a road trip, that kind of thing. But we can predict the weather with a great de degree of accuracy these days because we have so much data to go from, yeah. from the past. That's right. And I think evangelization is a lot like that. It's not an exact science, yes. but we can learn a lot because human nature has not changed in 2,000 years, 3,000 years, 10,000 years. We can learn a lot about the way people change, the way hearts change, the way societies change. Yeah. And, and the, the third revolution is, is the work. Uh, looking at the, the understanding of work before, uh, you know, Christianity sure. was engaged in the world. Sure. What did that look like, uh, you know, to kind of give that contrast? Again? It looked stupid with two O's <laughs> to, to the pagans. That's, that's it. You know, you read the first great anti-Christian tract, which is written in the 100s by Chelsus, right? And it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's against us. Yes. And, and what, what does he do to deride us? He says, they're common workers. They're wool workers. Mm -hmm. You know, these are carpenters. They worship a carpenter. This is crazy. Because leisure was looked upon as a virtue. Mm -hmm. Work was looked upon as a vice. And it was not fit for noble people. So it was demeaning. It was demeaning. Yeah. Yeah. It was for yeah. slaves. It was for slaves. you had slaves yeah. for, so, so you didn't have to work. So work meant yeah. you were a slave on some level, at least in a connotation. For sure. And yeah. God becomes incarnate as an ordinary laborer, mm -hmm. and he refers to his father as working still. Right. And if you look at who were the heroes of the early Christians, well, they were their patriarchs. Mm. You know, if you, they were herdsmen, they were, they were farmers, they were mariners like Noah, all of these people who just worked hard. And, and Paul, the great apostle, was a tent maker. Well, tent makers are often singled out for derision in the ancient world. You, 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 have, you have this easy way to wave us away because of the way we viewed work as something dignified, is the way we, we welcomed ordinary workers hmm. into our congregations. Look at ancient religion, okay? How was it, especially the mystery religions, who practiced the mystery religions? People who could afford to. Yeah. People who had the leisure to be initiated into the It was mysteries. a luxury. It yeah. was a luxury, who had a lot of time on their hands mm. to study these things, to go into it. It was not something that was universally available. They didn't want to make it universally available. It was something that was very elitist. I, I don't think of that when I think of father with the luxury <laughs> of <laughs> religious. Well, as we go through these, these revolutions that we're talking about, it seems to me that there is that overriding, arching theme that goes to at least to the number of the ones that we've talked about already, and that is recognizing the dignity of every human person. Yes. Mm. Um, and continuing to lift up that person as the image of God in front of you. Yes. And continuing mm. to promote their development and helping them to grow in holiness and grow 
grow in their relationship with Christ as well. And to find that religious meaning in everything they do, even mm -hmm. their daily work, that's a beautiful thing because if we look at the creation of Adam as the Christians always did, they always went back to the beginning. Mm -hmm. Adam was created to work, mm -hmm. you know, and his work was priestly as Scott Hahn points out in so many of his books. It was a priestly offering. Everything he did to, to till the soil, to guard it, it was all priestly work. He was offering the world back to God, and that's what the early Christians were doing as well. You know, this silent intervention on God's part whereby he, is, he injects into human history, human culture, something that go, goes entirely unnoticed, and that is the Holy Family. You know, there is the stage in which our redemption is set, and yet we kind of wonder, without acknowledging it or admitting it, you know, what, why wait 30 years to get it started? I mean, you know, okay, he's 30, that's a significant age, but I mean, for 30 years, he was redeeming the world. When we understand it in these terms, because suddenly you look at the Holy Family and you see the person of Jesus yes. and Joseph and Mary. You see a marriage, but you also see a Holy Family, and you see hard work mm -hmm. in a carpenter, you know, in a, in a carpenter shop and, and that sort of thing. That becomes sort of the nucleus that sort of, you know, not sort of, it transforms the world. It does. And, it, and, it, and, it's a, and you can see the transformation in the Christians early on. Yeah. If you look at the earliest documents of Christianity, um, uh, you know, from the 100s, from the second century, from that th those first generations, what you find is that repeatedly they emphasize these things. They emphasize the hidden life of Jesus. Yeah. They emphasize the work in the workshop, the yeah. manual labor. They're leading with their chin. They're doing all of these things that were scandalous in the eyes of the pagans, and they're holding them up. They're exalting them. And, and, and if you look at how it's affected the person, the family, the work, mm -hmm. how did that start influencing the, the culture and the community around them? How did that understand that, that un ancient understanding of community get affected and influenced in this? Well, uh, you know, uh, we have to keep reminding ourselves how different it was then. They did not have access to media the way we do today. Most right. people were illiterate. They couldn't read. So how were they getting their religion? Well, they were getting it through the liturgy. They were getting it through their, their conversation with one another. They were getting it through tangible acts like pilgrimage. Mm. What's interesting about the earliest pilgrimage sites is, again, they were related to the family life of Jesus Christ. The cave of the nativity is the first one we hear about, and we hear about that from Justin Martyr. Sure. And, and, the early, um, and, and the early sites in Egypt where people made their visit, they were the sites where the Holy Family lived together. So all of this just reinforced through actions, through conversations, hmm. through, um, through devotional uh, patterns and habits, these basic premises that, uh, that we now see as revolutionary. Then just to fast forward a little bit, as we see in the development of Christianity in the early days of the monasteries, where they pick up on this concept that work and prayer are uniquely combined together. Yes. And, and it brings back to my mind the story I often repeat is the story of Martha and Mary. Hmm. You can't be Martha if you're not Mary as well. But, and you need to be able to tie in those spiritual experiences to your work bring your work back to prayer to be able to do those things that God asks you to do. Mm. Yeah, and these hermits are desert fathers, you yes. know. And I think it, it's, a tr it's a transformation of the notion of family that starts with the mm -hmm. Holy Family, but it also starts with the notion that you mentioned at the beginning of the segment, namely sacramentum. You know, when you look at the Latin language, there's no real 
equivalent for what the Hebrews call the covenant. I mean, you've got testamentum, pactum, fetus, but they're all socio-political notions. Sacramentum, though, in the Latin language and the Roman culture, I mean, it was something really serious and sacred. When you did the sacramentum whereby you became a Roman citizen, you got the white toga, it was a public ceremony at an altar with sacrifice. When you entered the military, you got the red toga, you yes. know. It was a sacramentum because you were going to offer your blood you know, and face death for the sake of the empire. And so to recognize that marriage is now a sacramentum, mm -hmm. yeah. along with baptism, along with the Eucharist, but all of a sudden, it's like everything in life is charged with love, and it's also charged with a holiness that it just didn't ever have anywhere in the Greco-Roman world. Yeah. And it was universal. Those were Catholic ideas. Yeah. And you could go anywhere in, in, in the Roman world check into the Christian community and recognize the same life. We find that evident in the earliest writings. And Absolutely. beyond the empire, in India, where Thomas Christians sure. were, and in Persia, where the Syrians were, yeah, it's universal. Uh, let's, let's pick this up on the next segment on Franciscan University Presents. How can I come up with the words to tell the happiness of that marriage which the church cements and the sacrifice confirms and the benediction signs and seals of which angels carry the news which the father ratifies what a union two believers sharing one hope one desire one discipline one and the same service together they pray together prostrate themselves, together perform their fasts, mutually teaching, mutually exhorting, mutually sustaining, both equal in the church of God, equal at the banquet of God. Tertullian to his wife. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking about the seven, the book, The Seven Revolutions, um, how the, uh, the ancient world, or Christianity rather, changed the world and can change it again. Um, Mike, we, we, we've talked um, about these seven revolutions, but we missed a couple. And uh, before we go into applying this for today, yeah. um, let's talk about the state. Uh, what did the state look like before, or why does the state look the way it does today for uh, a lot of us, I think? Well, because we hold the state itself accountable to a higher standard. That's another thing that was unheard of before Christianity. Uh, the gods were identified with the state, and most educated people didn't take the gods seriously. Mm -hmm. So this is related to the revolution in religion. Uh, uh, the gods were identified with the state, so essentially when you worship the gods, you were worshiping the state. You were identifying yourself with the state. Mm -hmm. you, were, you were identifying yourself with the aims of whoever was ruler today, uh, because the, the state was made in his image, and, uh, and you were worshiping that, mm. literally worshiping it, offering sacrifice to it. The Christians were martyring, martyred uh, for refusing to do so. You can see the revolution beginning already in Romans 13, where Paul is writing to the Christians in Rome, yes. the heart of the empire. And in chapter 13, he describes how the civil authorities are all appointed by God, yeah. and he calls them servants of God, but that word could just as easily be translated slaves. And then he speaks of it as a ministry. He uses the word diakonia, diakonos. And so they're servants of God, but they're also deacons. They're ministers of God 
for the common good. You know, and again, we look back 2,000 years later, and what's the big deal? Back then, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. You know, and so to recognize the fact that they're going to be accountable to God on the last day, the way Paul speaks to Agrippa in the book of Acts, you know, you're going to have to give an account to God for how you use this power. And and to look at them with love and concern, because that's the striking thing about the the, the Christians of the first generation. They weren't snarky. They weren't, uh, they weren't, they didn't cop the attitude of modern pundits. Right. You know, they, they addressed the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the rulers respectfully Respect. yes. and, uh, and, and tried to use uh, their own standard of reason to refute the, the established positions there. We find this in Justin Mar- Martyr, for example, St. Justin Martyr in the, in the second century. Uh, we, we find that in, in most of the apologists. We get to Tertullian and he could do snark. <laughs> you know, but it still took three centuries practically for the Edict of Constantine for oh, religious sure. freedom. I mean, well, get into that because yeah. I mean that is huge. Yeah, it, it is. It is huge because Constantine is introducing an idea of religious freedom, mm-hmm. uh, and and Constantine is sometimes tarred with a brush that's that's unfair. People say he imposed Christianity, but he did not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He did favor Christianity through his actions, but legally Christianity was just allowed as one of the many options, religious options that were available at the time. He did not punish people who adhered to the traditional religion. That came later with Theodosius. It did come, but Constantine is not responsible for it. Instead, he was the first in history to articulate a a policy of religious liberty for the em- empire. Yeah. Mm. It's, really, it's the very opposite of what he's usually portrayed as doing. You sure. know. And, and he established really a mode of, of living with the church so that eventually we find in the person of Ambrose of Milan, right. I believe, mm-hmm. this, uh, this uh, very practical working out of what it means for uh, the state to be accountable to God. Yeah. Yeah. Ambrose is, is calling the emperor to task, you know, and saying, you're violating the moral code here. And, and the emperors are shocked. Yeah. It's striking to me how you talk about how the Christians were, were characterized as being intolerant <laughs> yes. because of their belief in the monotheistic uh, yes. the God, the one God manifested in the three persons of the Trinity. Uh, and yet they're supposed to be tolerating all of the different forms of religion that are existing in the state at the time. Yeah. And you see certainly that carrying over to some degree in our world today, that we are the intolerant ones because we want to hold true to those absolute truths that have been handed down to us by God Almighty. Because we won't say they're equally true. Mm -hmm. That's right. Even if we allow kind of a marketplace of ideas, that sort of thing, even if we affirm religious liberty, we won't say that things are equally true. Mm -hmm. I, I do think that pagans have an insight into our faith, though, that we sometimes don't have. Yes. And that is, it's sort of like you can't isolate leaven. Once you put it in the bread, it's going to affect the mm-hmm. whole loaf, right. you know. Right. And so when you have this idea of one God who is, you know, establishing this family that is the extension of God the Father, and you have the Great Commission to make disciples not of individuals within all nations, but to make disciples of all nations through Jesus Christ who is our high priest, but he's also the king of kings. And so there's a subtext that Caesar picks up on, even if we don't, not only back then, but today as well. There's something universal. There's something that is holistic. Mm -hmm. There's no area of life that escapes the lordship of Jesus, not only for us individually, but we're, besides rational animals, we're social animals. And so I think outsiders look at us and say, don't you understand that the inner logic of your faith is gonna impact us, even if you insist upon tolerance, you're going to bring the love of Christ 
intruding into our lives, yes. you know. Right. Mm -hmm. and, well, and I, I want to kind of just get a little chance to look look at the history and say how it applies today. So first, I, I guess I would ask, when you look at these revolutions, what do you think is having the most profound impact or has had the most profound impact in the world? The revolution in religion. Yeah. Because, I'll, t I'll tell you why, because we become what we worship. Mm. I think that's true. I have a friend who was raised in, uh, in kind of a strain of Calvinism uh, that, that saw God as always angry, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And he said his dad bought this big old Cadillac and he said uh, they had to replace the, um, the, uh, the dashboard three times because his father, in anger, punched the dashboard. And he said it was always on the way home from church. <laughs> <laughs> we become what we worship, yeah. okay? Uh, if we look at the gods of the Roman pantheon, they were capricious. Yes. They were accountable to no moral standard. They were not accountable to reason. They, were, they, they could do, what, do as they wished. They kind of followed their whims. Yes. And, and really, people became what they worshipped. Mm -hmm. right. they, uh, they, they became capricious. They, 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 they came to value the same things. Look at even the most developed, refined, philosophical religion of antiquity. Look at the religion of Plotinus. Mm. You know, his god was aloof, elitist, and really indifferent to human behavior. And, and so you have a philosophical religion that, that forms people in this way to be aloof indifferent, elitist, unconcerned about what's going on around them. Our God is love. Mm -hmm. Our God is an ordinary worker who, who, who consents to go among the people and touch the unclean, touch the contagious, touch the, the, the lives of all of these people who are outcast from society. The early Christians worshipped that God manifest in Jesus Christ and they became what they worshipped, even sacramentally. That was their belief. They became deified, divinized by their Eucharistic contact with Jesus Christ. You know, they became what they worshipped and, and, and the pagans took notice. And the pagans, one family at a time, one person at a time, became Christian. Mm -hmm. And these seven revolutions, ha as we've already said numerous times, has affected everything that yes. we know today. Even the intellectual, secular atheists, you know, their world is, be is influenced and affected and positively affected right. right. you know, because of Christianity. Why is it that, that we don't, uh, or our culture as a whole, doesn't appreciate the, the impact that Christianity has had? I mean, how do we just, you know, snow it under? How do we push it out of the way? You know, I think a lot of it um, has to do with a residual anti-Catholicism. You know, it, it's, it, we're still living with the after effects of the Protestant Reformation. Mm -hmm. You know, it was this, this pushing away uh, of, of, of things Catholic. And, and, and once you start to whittle away at the things you'll accept mm -hmm. of the Christian patrimony, uh, you start to, to whittle pretty close to the core and eventually you cut into the core. And I think that's where we are right now. You know, I, I think that there's also a sense in which the master-slave relationship that is rooted in law that you obey out of fear, you know, is easier because love actually requires more of us. Yes. Not only to receive that as a gift, it's very humbling, but also to kind of become like the one we worship. You know, I can look back and see, not only did you become like the one you worship, but you also worshiped gods because they sanctioned behavior that you really desired anyway. Yeah. You know, when the rabbis looked at the golden calf, they explained it not just as idolatry, but as immorality. That is, this 
idolatry sanctions behavior that you're craving. And so it isn't as though you really believe in Apis, the Egyptian deity, but you know that when you worship him, you can do these things. And so underneath the anti-Catholicism, even before that Reformation, Protestantism, I, I just think that there is something that is demanding you know, of our lives. If we don't submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we're going to end up submitting to all of the lusts and the fears mm -hmm. that control our lives. And in a certain sense, that's the default mode of our own nature apart from grace. Yes. You know, so going back to the garden and then some. You know. <laughs> yes, yes. But it goes back to that old principle that we who have faith are required to respond to that faith, to live yes. out that faith. Faith is not just something we express when we go to Mass on Sunday morning. Your friend who was going and beaten on the, the dashboard, yeah. uh, he was carrying some things with him, not ideally, but <laughs> right, right. we need to take what we hear and what we celebrate, who we become during the liturgy, into our daily lives. And, and so often right now we're being threatened with freedom of religion, religious freedom becoming the freedom to worship within the confines of the church, yeah. but not to take that outside. And we need to be those faithful men and women, those Catholics who really want to live our lives consistent with what we learn and what we practice, what we celebrate in liturgy yeah. in every day's day-to-day -day life, in our interactions with each other, the people we live with, our family, the people we work with, everybody throughout our entire society. Yeah, so let's take that. What are the lessons uh, that we can draw from these revolutions, you talk about it in the last chapter, you know, what are some, uh, what would you say the marching orders? What are the lessons that we can apply to today from, uh, from the ancient world? Well, I think that, that there are a number of things. One is we want to live the life of the church. Mm. We want to be faithful the way they were faithful. We look at uh, the martyrs of Abatina, for example. Uh, they were arrested on a Sunday. Why were they arrested on a Sunday? Because whenever the Romans saw a gathering on a Sunday, they, they knew it was a Christian gathering because it was an ordinary work day. Here are these people gathering together, singing songs. You could round them up. The judge says to them, why did you do this? They said, we cannot live without the Mass. Yeah. They would rather die than miss Mass. And we've got we've to recover that sense that this is where we're getting our real life. And this is the life we need to take out to the world. The other thing is to, to, to really go out to the world and seek um, uh, ways uh, to show our kindness mm. to others, beginning with the people closest to us, but outward from there, mm. uh, uh, so that people can see that the face of Jesus Christ is kindness in yeah. this world. Uh, sometimes it's a hard kindness because you're telling them a hard truth, but it's only your friends, your true friends and your family who will tell you a hard truth. Mm -hmm. And people will eventually come to appreciate that in you. So we have to witness to the truth. We have to be kind. We can look for common ground because we own the common ground. <laughs> you know, if they are affirming rights today, well, you can ask, where did those rights come from? Does the rights fairy leave them under your pillow? <laughs> no. They're God-given rights. Right. And the early Christians knew that. Okay? If we have human equality, if we affirm human dignity, if we look um, at an ideal of peace among nations, if we say that there's a morality that must be followed even on the battlefield, we can say these things, we can affirm these principles because Christianity laid them firmly as the foundation of Western civilization. And we, we've got to affirm those principles strongly. Let them know, hey, we've got this common ground. You know where that common ground came from? 
and then tell them. Mm -hmm. Right, that's a profound building block for us to have that conversation. And as you talked about it, maybe in the first segment, the starkest contract was the, the martyrdom and, and the charity. Yes. And that's kind of what you're promoting right now, is yes. saying, go out and witness, um, but also do that with charity. Show the love yes. and, and then reveal the common ground that we all have. That is profound. Well, uh, stay with us for the final segment of Franciscan University Presents. It is right and holy, therefore, men and brethren, rather to obey God than to follow those who, through pride and sedition, have become the leaders of a detestable emulation. For we shall incur no slight injury, but rather great danger, if we rashly yield ourselves to the inclinations of men who aim at exciting strife and tumults, so as to draw us away from what is good. Let us be kind one to another, after the pattern of the tender mercy and benignity of our Creator. St. Clement of Rome Welcome to the final segment of Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking about the revolution that Christianity brought to the world and how it can still affect us today. Father Sean, could you lead us off? Sure. As we spend time today talking about the various themes, that the revolutions that come out in your book, Mike, uh, I certainly want to thank you for all that you've done to be able to remind us of all the things that happened in the early days of the church to help us to be who we are uh, today. Uh, but as I went through the book, and as we even been discussing today, I hear these constant themes which seem to be coming out in the teaching of Pope Francis. Mm -hmm. You know, encouraging us in many ways, as you're doing in the book right now, to pick up on these revolutions, to embrace them once again, to, to reject some of the things that the culture or the society is trying to get us to do, but also encouraging folks to be welcoming and welcoming people back to the church, into the church, while still recognizing the absolute truths that we need to continue to uphold as Catholics. Being bracing, being loving, as we celebrate you know, this entire year of mercy, uh, preaching the mercy of God in each and every one of our lives, and recognizing that it is because God is so loving, God is so merciful, that we are welcomed into the church, into that personal relationship with Christ, but we also need to share it with others. Another thing too, uh, going through the book and, and our discussion today reminds me that as a preacher, I need to be bringing out these themes in the way in which I encourage the faithful who come uh, to Mass and hear the Word of God being preached to them, to give them the tools to help them just as the early uh, members of the Christian Church, uh, Christianity did during those days where they were recognizing that personal relationship, recognizing because they had something special they were willing to die for these truths of the faith, to have that passion for what we believe in. It's truly needed in our church and in our world today so that we can continue to pass on to others those truths that we hold so dearly right now. Thank you, Father. Scott? Well, you know, we've gone through the revolutions, but I don't think at any point we actually enumerated them. So just to summarize in order to kind of reflect, the first revolution was the person, mm -hmm. human dignity. The second is the family. And this idea of 
sacredness with regard to marriage and all of that. The third is work, the sanctity of labor. The fourth is religion, rooted in the Trinity, the revelation that God is a family, and then that the church is more than an institution. It is the extension of God's own family. The fifth is the community, the effects that it has. The sixth is death. And then suddenly we realize the resurrection. We're going to be ushered into this heavenly family. And the seventh is the state. What difference does this make in terms of political organization? And I think what I learned from this, I love the book, but it reminds me of what we've discussed many times on various shows before. And that is you can do the faith with crowds, but ultimately it really is spread person to person mm. through friendship. I mean, Aristotle in the Nicomachean Ethics, you know, and other places too, extols the virtue of friendship. But this supernaturalizes it. it the Christian faith establishes friendship with God. And far from demeaning, you know, ordinary friendship or natural family life, it elevates. Suddenly we are children of God. Suddenly our families reflect God. Suddenly our work reflects the saving work of Jesus. Nothing is unaffected. But all of this goes back to friendship. In marriage, in family, in the neighborhood, in the parish, at work, this sort of thing. Sharing the joy of the gospel, person to person, by extending friendship, you're really extending nothing less than the bonds of divine family life. It's like, how good can it get? I mean, that's good news that will transform ancient empires and also, you know, post-Christian empires. I mean, I'm convinced that we have the means by which God could do it again. There's no doubt in my mind that, no, he wants to more than we want him to. If we just give him consent, stand back and watch it happen a second time. Mm, that's so good. Thank you, Scott. Mike. I agree with what Scott is saying. <laughs> and, and, and what I love about the study of history is that it gives us hope. I mean, we talked about the revolutions. We talked about what life was like before the revolution. And it can be depressing. It can be bleak. It's anti-life. It's, um, it's a life without hope. And that's why there was this demographic winter because people were living in opulence. They were living with unprecedented uh, uh, prosperity in, in Rome at that time. They were taxing the world and living off the largesse. And yet, they could not muster the will to reproduce themselves for another generation. What we can see, though, is that Christianity transformed that. It transfigured it. It, it, it practically transubstantiated it, you know, <laughs> into something beautiful, something glorious, and yet something continuous with the good things that were there before, you know, the best things about the culture that had preceded it. So when we look at history, um, we can have hope. Mm -hmm. We're often told that uh, if, if, uh, if we don't know history, we're doomed to repeat it. You know, uh, Cardinal Newman said that to be deep in history is to cease to be a Protestant. It was for him, you know, so we're more deeply Catholic as we go forward. But the other thing is we also have an agenda for evangelization. Uh, we can look back at that time and say, these Christians were operating with all the, all the odds stacked against them. They were illegal. They were so illegal, they were a capital crime. You could die for witnessing to your faith. You know, your death would be a witness to the faith. And yet they went forward with courage. They went forward with joy, and they changed the world. They changed the world at a rate of 40% per decade worldwide. Wow. If all of our parishes were growing at the rate of 40% <laughs> per decade, we'd change the world in no time. That's right. That's no right. time flat. We've got to look back um, and learn, and then look forward with hope, 
and with the same kind of courage, the same kind of joy our ancestors had. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for this book. Um, if you've enjoyed today's program, we do encourage you to go and buy the book, but we also have a free handout here, Early Christianity, A Tough Gig. It gives a great <laughs> insights into uh, get a, an interview that, that Mike gave, uh, but you can get it at faithandreason.com or just for asking us. Um, but I, I want to pick up on the point that, 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 Mike, you just shared about the idea of hope. I think our world today reflects a lot more, uh, or has more similarities with the pre-Christian world uh, than it does with 50 years ago. And we need to recognize that. We have to reset our standards of where we are and what world we're living in. We need to be countercultural, revolutionary uh, Catholics. And um, when, you, when you realize that, that this is our world and this is our home and God has given us a great mission uh, to really embrace this. Um, I want to, I think your first challenge or inspiration in the, in the end of the book was to first not isolate ourselves. And when, when we think about this world, it's hemming us in on all sides. It's easy to, to kind of create a, a Catholic ghetto and, and to be happy in our little communities. But the call is to influence our friends, our family, our culture, our world. Our world is broken and it is in need of the Savior. It is in need of the revolution to influence our culture again. And, but the only way we can do that is if we ourselves realize that, that God has had a revolution on us, has had a conversion, as, as the Franciscans say, that, that we're always in the process of ongoing conversion, that we have this metanoia, that we've encountered Christ, and our life is, is dramatically and drastically changed. And then through that, we can transform the world. Uh, St. Francis was a kind of accidental uh, um, uh, revolutionary because it was his union with Christ, his, his love for Christ, that based on that, he went out and served the poor. And through that, all the world came and wanted to see what was that that was different. The, the, the early Christians, they had something that was a joy that was palpable, a purpose that was just inspiring. And we need to recapture that. We need to dust off the, the history books because it's our story. And we need to embrace that so that we can tell the whole world the good news, that we can win because you know it's Christ's victory, it's not ours. Too many times we look at our weaknesses. They had all the odds stacked against them. And with all of that, with their limitations, the world around them, the persecution, the death, we're not experiencing that yet today. And yet we are at that same grace that was in their, their lives, in the church, the early church, is that same power that's in our lives today. And we can uh, be that agent of revolution in our church, in our world, in our family. Um, I want to invite you to be more a part of Franciscan University's mission, which is to educate, to evangelize, and send forth joyful disciples. I want to invite you because this whole program is springing forth from our, the very heart of who we are. And we want to invite you to be a partner with us by maybe coming here on our campus uh, to get a degree uh, or possibly in our online program, as well as coming to our summer conferences that are engaged with speakers like Mike and Scott and so many others, or to go on one of our pilgrimages to, to shrines and holy sites around the world like the Holy Land to see the early church. And I also want to invite you to go to faithandreason.com, not only to get the free handout, but other great talks and inspirations to go deeper in the faith so as to equip you for the new evangelization. Um, and Father, would you be able to close us with Absolutely. a blessing? Absolutely. This day may the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit come upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents, or request today's free handout and purchase past programs 
by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357.